Now, friends, as we come here to the sixth chapter, I must say it's not quite as doleful as chapter 5 was, which was entirely judgment. And here the subject is, Israel will return in the last days. But presently they're to be judged for their current sins of that day. But there is the hope that we have here. Now, God says here in verse 15 that closes chapter 5, He says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Now, God says, until they call upon me, I will go and return. That is, I will not deliver them until they turn to me. That is the thought that you have here. Now, their great sin, as we see, has been idolatry. Now, will you notice? He says, verse 1 of chapter 6, "...come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up." As it were, for that day, it was God's last call to the nation the northern kingdom. And it was also a warning to any nation that has made a profession of being a Christian nation that has had the benefit of the Word of God. A great principle is put down here. And this also looks to the future, that God's future plan is that He will heal them. Though He's torn them, He intends to bind them up. Now, verse 2 is a remarkable verse. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Now, here is something I would like to develop, but do not have time to do so. But let me give you a line that you can pursue. In the third day he will raise us up. Now, that's interesting in the light of the resurrection of Christ on the third day. And he was raised for our justification today, both Jew and Gentile. And may I say that that will be applicable in that day, because you will find in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, and we've already been over that, and you'll recall that God speaks of the day that he will bring them back into that land and bring them to himself is a resurrection. And it will be based on the one who was raised on the third day. It rests upon that because there was a redemption provided and a justification that if any man will accept, will bring him into a right relationship with Almighty God. And Paul develops that in the 11th chapter of Romans, I would like to turn to it, but I'm having to resist the temptation to do that because we want to move into this chapter a little farther. I doubt whether we will, but we hope to. And in the 11th chapter, God receives this nation back, which he intends to do after he completes his purpose in the church and takes the church out of the world, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile, people out of every tribe and nation, and I believe that today, and I'm not sure what radio is going to be the means, it's penetrating every corner of the globe today. 
Now, our program is, and there are other programs. And the Word of God is going out today by men who are giving sound teaching. And I believe that there are going to be people out of every tongue and tribe and nation that are going to come before him in the church to worship. Now, after God gets through with that program, he turns again to this nation, and he's going to raise them up. This prophecy, as every prophet that wrote in the Scripture and some that didn't write, spoke of God's future purpose for the nation Israel. Even Moses, before they could even get in the land, began to talk about the day would come when for the third time he'd restore them back to the land that would be a permanent restoration in the land. And on the third day he'd do it. It would be the third. The third day he raised Christ from the dead. And that just doesn't happen to be an accidental number, by the way. Now, let me read verse 3. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, and as the latter and former rain unto the earth. Now, I'm going to hold till we get to Joel, talk about the former and the latter rain. And there are those that say that the latter rain is returned to that land. I had heard a great deal about that before I have made several trips to Israel. Now, I don't think that you could say that either former latter rain is returned. They have a certain amount of rainfall, but it's much less than Southern California. And it's not the rain that makes this the Garden of Eden and also... A Garden of Eden that's filled with smog and traffic, but it's irrigation that does that. And Israel actually doesn't have enough water to irrigate everything over there today. You couldn't say we're seeing the fulfillment of that. But again, when these people turn to God, not only does a blessing come to the people, but it'll come to the land, comes to the animal world. That's the great solution to even ecology today. I get so weary of these ecologists telling you how they think that it ought to be done. Of course, most of them are not involved financially in any of these things, but they, for instance, don't want oil brought from way up in Alaska. Well, if I interpret the conditions rightly, we've got to have oil. And we're going to be in a bad fix if we don't get it. But friends, just soon as man gets moving in that area, he'll spoil it because man's a sinner and he spoils everything that he can. We're even now making the moon a garbage dump. We got a lot of it up there already. And I guess we'll keep on. And we do need a place to dump garbage. There's no question about that. I won't argue that point. But the important thing is, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. That is the very secret of the solution to the problem of life is to know the Lord. And Paul, even after he came to the end of his life, that was still his ambition, that I might know him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be made conformable unto his image. And there's no way for improvement in this world apart from a knowledge of God. Now, the Word of God is very emphatic about that. Neither it's right or it's wrong. So far, after all these thousands of years, 
It's been proven right. And I don't think this present generation is upsetting it by any means. Now, let's move on here. Verse 4. He says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew it goeth away. Now, God says this as if he is just a little bit confused. He's frustrated. Well, what am I going to do with you? I love you, but you continue on in sin, and I'm going to have to judge you. You see, it puts God on the horns of a dilemma. A judgment is a strange work of God. He wants to save, not judge. But when uh, people keep turning away from God, then the day comes when he has to judge them. Now, these people were religious, but you see... They had no knowledge of God, and they were far from God. May I again bring this up today? We today have a lot of religion, and I'm opposed to religion today. But here in a newspaper where the editor permits people to write in their viewpoint, and someone wrote the editor here, he says, In today's society, religion has outlasted its usefulness. Man at long last has outgrown the necessity for this opiate. No longer does he have to explain the unknown with folk tales and the worship of a superior being. In a complex society such as ours, religion can only mute and cloud the mind. Religion blurs and distorts important details and information, interferes with important decisions, and promotes bigotry and prejudice. Now is the time for humanity to discard this mental blindfold. And I'm going to say something that will startle you. I agree with that. I wish we could get rid of religion today. And somebody answered that. And they did it so much better than I could. Let me read what they wrote and the editor published it. It says in response to the April 26th letter entitled, Religion Term Mental Blindfold, I agree with Mr. So-and-so about the effects of religion. For religion is man's attempt to reach God through his own efforts. I have never been a religious man. But about four years ago, something happened that has really changed my life. I invited Jesus Christ to take control of my life and accepted the fact that I cannot reach God by myself but that he has made a relationship with him possible through his Son, Jesus Christ. Since that commitment, I have grown increasingly aware of my social responsibility and have grown to love and accept myself and other people regardless of age, race, creed, or color. And I don't think you could improve upon that. And I appreciate the person in San Diego who sent that to me, by the way. And it's so applicable in a situation like this. People today say, out with religion. I say, fine, let's sweep it out the back door. And let's let Jesus Christ, the light of the world, shine in. That's the important thing, you see. Now, these people, they were going through religion. They were religious. But their goodness was like a morning cloud. It's just all form, ritual, and ceremony. And like the early Jew, it goeth away. And that's all in the world that their religion was. And a great many people today 
they wear religion like you'd wear some loose-fitting garment, something you can put on and take off at any time. Well, that's the thing that God's condemning them for. They were religious, but they didn't know God. And they had never had really a transforming experience. And I personally, though in this first letter that I read here, I don't appreciate the assumption of a writer like this that he has, and his little crowd of liberals today, have a monopoly on intellectualism and they have a monopoly on all the brains of the world. The fact of the matter is, if you want to weigh brains, they're just have been about as much on one side as the other. Even today, it's about equally balanced. There was a time when it was all on the side of the Word of God. That, of course, is not true today. But I do think it's pretty well balanced today. So this assumption that we've reached a high intellectual level and we can get rid of God, my friend, that's the problem. Religion has kept a great many people from knowing God. Now, listen to him. He still talks to them here. He says, Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. God says, I skinned them alive with the prophets. I appreciate the letters that I get that commend us for just giving the word out as it is. Hew to the line, let the chips fall where they may. I've done that in all my ministry. And I've always found that the real folk always want to hear the word of God. And the others, you expect to hear from them that they oppose you. And personally, I don't mind that at all. I appreciate those, however, that stand with us in this kind of a ministry. And I believe that we ought to give the Word of God out just like that, by the way. And that's exactly what God says here to his people. He says, I've skinned you alive with the prophets. They have really gone after you. But you didn't listen to them. And that's been the problem today. We rejoice in the tremendous outreach that we have. But we recognize it's really a small minority when you really get down to basic facts. There has been a great interest and turning to the Word of God. But again, how much of it has really been genuine, you see? And I see people turning in all directions today, going the wrong way. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets... I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as light that goeth forth. You see, it wasn't for the lack of information or the availability of it. God had sent them prophets, but they had turned their back. Now God says in verse 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. You see, they were going through a form. And I'd like to say this very carefully. You can go to church on Sunday and be as fundamental as anyone can be. You criticize the preacher, criticize the choir, criticize everybody. And maybe they deserve it. I don't know. But may I say to you, until you can put the Word of God in shoe leather and let it get down out yonder where the rubber meets the road and there be an evidence of mercy in your own heart and in your own life, I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offering. And don't think that going to some church banquet, which is sort of a burnt offering anyway, 
that that somehow or another is a substitute for really eating the bread of life and carving off a nice big porterhouse steak out of the Word of God and studying the Word of God. No substitute at all. Now, let me move hurriedly here. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. That is, God's covenant with this nation. Therefore have they dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of those who work iniquity and is polluted with blood. But you see, there will be a bomb out of Gilead. We need that bomb today. But what came out of that? Iniquity. Verse 9, And his troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. In other words, the priests, in refusing to give men the water of life, or to give them the bread of life, were actually committing murder. And I'll be honest with you, I think a minister that stands in the pulpit and doesn't give the Word of God out is guilty, just as we have it stated right here. I didn't think of that. The Word of God says it here. You're guilty of murder, my friend. Now, verse 10, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, he hath set in harvest for thee. In other words, your day's coming. This is a warning for them. When I return the captivity of my people. Now, there's a day coming. God says, I'm going to return them, bring them back to the land. But now, I have to judge them for their sin. Now, friends, we're still in this section where we find God dealing in a rather harsh way with the northern kingdom, and yet in a very tender way as he is attempting to call him back to himself before judgment comes. And here in the seventh chapter, Israel turns to Egypt and Assyria instead of turning to God. And Israel, as he will say here, Ephraim is like a silly dove. And he has a few other choice metaphors for them also. And we'll look at that as we get into this seventh chapter. Now, I want to read verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, "...when I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria." For they commit falsehood, and the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without. Now, this has been the first mention of Samaria, I believe. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. At least Omri made it the capital, and then his son Ahab and Jezebel, they built a palace up there. And in our last tour... I insisted that that be put on the tour, that the folk could go to that hill of Samaria and see the fulfillment of prophecy, the judgment of God upon what is probably one of the most beautiful spots in the world to have a palace or a home, for that matter. It's on a hill that overlooks that entire area. You can see to the west the Mediterranean, to the east the Jordan Valley, to the south, the city of Jerusalem, to the north, Mount Hermon and Megiddo. What a choice spot, and there's nothing to obstruct the viewpoint in any direction. But today, it's a desolate waste. 
the judgment of God is indeed upon it. Now, what was happening in Israel was this, that the sin that had been covered is now being uncovered. That is, what they had been doing secretly, they now doing it openly. That is, there's no shame or no conviction, no conscience relative to their sin. And it's as it were, the Lord would forgive their iniquity, but they persist in it and go farther in it. And this last step, I think, is probably the worst step of all. It's one thing to sin in secret. That's bad enough. But when you attempt to bring it out and sin in the open, flaunt it before the world, then may I say to you that you've gone to the bottom. That's the reason I believe that this book has a message for our nation or any nation. This nation happened to be God's chosen people. They sinned against him, and he sent them into captivity. Now, do you believe that any other nation could get by with the same type of sinning? And this certainly is characteristic of our nation before. Now, when I grew up, the few homosexuals in our city, for I lived in Nashville, Tennessee at that time, they were undercover. I tell you, they were operated rather secretly, and they didn't come out in the open. Now today, they're having parades, and it's being uncovered that are all across this nation today that there is not called girls, but called boys, homosexuals and that it numbers in the hundreds of thousands. Now, today, even the courts have been lenient, and the lawmakers are making it easy for them. What was done in secret is now brought out in the open, and that's characteristic of other sins. Somebody said to me some time ago, they said, well, Dr. McGee, in our day, people sin just like they do today. I said, yes, they did. I said, for I was saying... I said, I was with that crowd. I know. And this party says, well, what's the difference? Well, I said, I'll tell you, in my day, we kept it secret. It was kept undercover. But today, that thing is brought out in the open, and it's flaunted before the world, and it's called a new morality, and there is actually given to it sort of a halo. You are new and daring and courageous, and I heard that compliment given to a girl who admitted that she was living with a man she was not married to, had an illegitimate child. Well, may I say to you, perhaps I'm a square, but as somebody said in a letter the other day, the thing that we like is that you're square. It keeps you from going around in circles. Well, maybe that's it. But frankly, I must say that we're stepping downward as a nation, and this is not a mark of any advancement. It's a mark that we're losing what was called civilization, actually a Christian civilization, although I never believed it was that. Now, verse 2, "...and they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about there before my face." God says, they are now doing all of this out in the open. I knew, he said, that they were sinners before. But they've taken a step farther away from me, and I'm tempted to call them back to me. And they continue on. In other words, 
they have reached now the lowest depths of immorality. Now, in verse 3, they make the king glad with their wickedness and the princess with their lies. And the king applauded all of this. And the princes, they applaud all this sort of thing. And I think it's tragic today when the leadership of the nation in any field, whether it be education or science or politics or in the church, give themselves over to foul and blasphemous language, which they now are doing. That's something else that's out in the open today. Foul mouth leadership today. And they applaud this sort of thing. That means you're a he-man. It also means you've got a very poor vocabulary, by the way, and not able to express yourself. Now, this is something here that is very applicable to this nation, and it's been applicable to the great nations of the past that have now passed off the stage of human events, and they today lie in rubble and ruin and covered with the dust of the ground. Now, he continues on, verse 4. They are all adulterous like an oven heated by the baker who ceaseth from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. Now, here you have something, and this is another figure of speech that I think is quite interesting, that the baker got his oven ready, but he held back the heat of it and didn't let it become hot enough to cook bread until he got the dough all kneaded and ready, and then he turned the heat up. And this is a tremendous metaphor that he's using here. He says that immorality, and he says here, they're all adulterous. And he's not talking here about spiritual adultery. He's talking about gross immorality. Now, he said heretofore they've kept this undercover. But now, he says, they're like an open oven, heated, hot, you see, hot with passion. And today, why the thing that you get the impression of is that men are trying to prove that they are virile and that women are trying to prove that they are sexually alert. And today, that seems to be the thing that's now out in the open, you see. And today, this obsession with sex is something that is tremendous indeed. And he goes on now to say in verse 5, "...in the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with skins of wine. He stretcheth out his hand with scoffers." In other words, the king has become an alcoholic, and he's making a fool of himself. And again... The thing that we've mentioned before here, what was it that brought down the northern kingdom? Well, it was idolatry. It was turning from the living God. And that always leads to gross immorality. And gross immorality, as we've indicated before, wine and women, the bottle and the brothel, sauce and sex, that is the thing that occupied the attention of those people. Now... Let me ask you a fair question. If you think that I'm a squire being unfair today, or I'm a bigot or something like that, may I say to you, as you look about you today, what is the chief occupation of men and women in all walks of life? 
Isn't it an occupation with liquor and with sex today? Hasn't that become a very prominent thing in this civilization of ours? Now, the thing is, it's brought out in the open today. And when it was brought out in the open in Israel, God says, I'll have to move in and judge you now because I've been calling you back. You were sinners all the time, but you were covering it up. Now you brought it out in the open. Now, I read verse 6. For they have made ready their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth like a flaming fire. In other words, everything is done to stir up the passions of men and women. And we hear this so-called sophisticated argument about pornography. Well, today we're adults and we ought to be able to choose what we want to see and what we want to hear. Well, I'm not able to choose what I want to see and what I want to hear on the radio and on the television today. And I can't walk down the street without I see things and I hear things. I don't choose that. It's more or less chosen for me. And I'm of the opinion that there are a great many people would like to see better things and hear better things than we are today. It's owing to whose liberty that you're talking about and whose freedom that you're speaking of. Now, he says, verse 7, they're all hot as an oven. And I think, oh boy, is that a picture of our nation today. They're all hot as an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. Now, he begins to talk about their kings are fallen. Well, may I say to you, the northern kingdom never had a good king. If you were with us when we were back in the historical books, and in my notes I list the kings of Israel and Judah. Now, Judah had a few good kings. In fact, five of them that led in revivals. But the northern kingdom didn't have a good king in the lot. Every one of them was a king that was as wicked as he could be. And Ahab and Jezebel, I suppose, reached the bottom of the list, but there were some that would run them a very close second. You may be sure of that. Now, let's continue to move on down here. And by the way, I should add that many of their kings were slain in the northern kingdom. And they made about nine different changes of dynasty. In other words, it started off with Jeroboam. And you don't go very far from Jeroboam until somebody gets in and murders his line. And another line starts out, and it doesn't go very far. And then somebody else is murdered. And then you have some that only one reign. The son didn't even make it to the throne so that that was a judgment upon them. And the kings were kings that God did not choose, you see. It was the line of David, and that line should have been the line that God would bless, not this line in the north, and he certainly did not. Now, verse 8, he says, Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. God never goes in for mixture. Have you ever noticed that? And I don't care what it is you mix. He somehow or another has never proved of that. I know that certain mixtures in food are delicious, and I like to mix fruit juices 
It makes, I think, a marvelous drink to put together pineapple juice and papaya juice and all these others, and it makes a very delicious drink. But for some strange reason, God never went in for mixture. God has said that it's best that you and I stay on our own level, in our own crowd, actually. And you will find that has been true. And that's one reason God's people today, God's children, born-again believers, ought to begin to recognize that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And this question of race, our color, or of any kind of other thing that would divide us ought not to divide us if we're in Christ. And there is a real division if we're not in Christ. Now he says, Ephraim is a cake not turned. And here we go again with another good homely illustration. And Hosea has many of them. Ephraim is a cake not turned. What does he mean? Well, if you've ever cooked pancakes, you see, in that day they cooked on top of the stove, and they never had a oven as we have it today. It was a matter of cooking these cakes, and they still do that over in that land today. They're cooking on top of the stove. It was like pancakes. And they can be burnt on one side, and on the other side they can be raw. And that is what you have in this picture here. You have a picture of a nation, hot on one side, but burned, and on the other side, raw. What a picture it is of them. They're burned on one side, raw on the other. They blow hot and cold toward God. The story is told, it's a sort of a fairy story about a man wandering through the woods, and he came to the house of a very strange individual, and this man that came in was a very strange individual himself. And so the man that lived in the house said, Are you hungry? Would you like to have a bowl of soup, porridge? And the man said, Yes, he would. And as he came in, he blew on his hands. And he said, My, my hands are cold. And he blew on them. And they sat down to eat the soup. And the man blew on the soup. And the man that lived there said, what are you doing? He says, well, it's hot. I'm making it cool. And so this man that lived there jumped up and ran out of his own house. He said, I don't like anybody that can blow hot and cold. Well, my friend today, that's the way a great many people are doing as far as Christianity is concerned. With one crowd, they blow hot. With another crowd, they blow cold. On one day, they blow hot. On another day, they blow cold. Ephraim is a cake, a pancake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here, and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, and they go to Assyria. Now, if you've ever been dove hunting, you know that if a dove has a nest with either eggs or little ones in it, that if you go near, why, she will act as if she's got a broken wing and actually let you get very close to her. She's luring you away. Now, that actually is not smart because it tells two things. When you get that close, you know there's a nest nearby. That's number one. Number two is 
she endangers her life. Now, here was Ephraim. Ephraim now, not turning to God, ran first down to Egypt for help. And then she changed and went up to Assyria when Egypt wouldn't give the help they wanted. Back and forth, like a silly dove. What a picture. In verse 12, When they shall go, I'll spread my net upon them. And when I was a boy, I remember we used to get a big box and prop it up and put corn under it, and we'd hide over in the barn, and the doves would come, and we'd have the corn outside and lead right under. Then when two or three doves got under that box, we pulled a string, and the box came down on them. Silly doves. That's what God says here. He says, I'll spread my net upon them. I'll bring them down like the fowls of the heavens. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they've transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. God had a redemption for them, and yet these people were turning from the living and true God. What a picture it is. And they have not cried unto me with their heart. When they wailed upon their beds, they assembled themselves for grain and wine, and they rebelled against me. They didn't realize that the famine they were having was a judgment of God upon them. And they were crying about they had no food. Though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. That is, you put an arrow in it to shoot, and the thing breaks, string breaks. It's a deceitful bow. You can't depend on them. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And actually, Egypt will begin to mock them and ridicule them for the way that they were acting in that day. May I say to you, this is a very severe section of the Word of God, but it ought to have a message for us today. But somehow or another, Hosea is not the most popular prophet. He wasn't in his day, and he won't be today. Now, if you have your Bible, turn to the eighth chapter of Hosea. I suppose there's no prophecy that is more applicable to our day than the prophecy of Hosea. And if that is true, and I think I said that in Jeremiah, both of these prophets prophesied right at the time of the downfall of the nation. That actually ought to alarm us as a nation today, but I don't have really the faith that it will, because I think probably we have stepped over the line as this nation had. Now, in chapter 8, this is the subject we've given it. Israel turns to golden calves and altars of sin. And now they have turned from God, and they look to their king and their wealth to deliver them. Will you listen to this? Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good, and the enemy shall pursue him. 
They have set up kings, but not by me. They've made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold, they've made idols for themselves, that they may be cut off. Now, God is explaining to them why he is going to send them into captivity. Now, before he has spelled out the sins, they have broken his commandments. Now, that has led them to break God's covenant that he's made with these people. You see, God had made a covenant with Abraham that's applicable to them, and God made a covenant with Moses that's applicable to them, and especially as it pertained to that land and how he would bless them in that land. And if they didn't serve him, he'd put them out of that land. And then God made a covenant with David. Now, they have broken these covenants, but God will never break these covenants. The covenant of Abraham that God made with him is unconditional. One he made with David is unconditional. And they can transgress it. And when they do, they will be judged. They will be put out of the land. But that will never destroy the fact that God says that I'm giving you that land for an eternal possession. Just means that generation's going to be put out, but another generation will be brought back to enter the land. That was true when they came out of Egypt. They would not enter because of unbelief. And when they didn't, God says, then you won't enter, but your children will. Now, we have practically that in these covenants. Now, he says something else here, that they've set up kings, but not by me. Now, as we explained last time, God had said that the line of David was to rule over them. Jeroboam led a rebellion and the line of kings that were set up were never men who turned to the living God. They never attempted in any way to bring the people into the worship of God. They all went into idolatry. Jeroboam, from the very beginning, put up these two golden calves, one in Samaria, one in Bethel, and he did it to keep the people from returning back to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. But this is God's judgment of them, that they have set up kings over them that God does not approve of. Then in verse 5, he says, Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be before they attain to innocence? Well, they're guilty. They're sinful, not innocent at all. But notice he says, thy calf, O Samaria. Now, Samaria became the capital under Omri, the father of Ahab. And Ahab married Jezebel, and her father was a priest over in Sidon, among the Phoenicians, worshiper of Baal. And she transported over several hundred prophets of Baal into that land. And they became worships of Baal. That was the calf worship that was there. And so there was this calf set up. Now, God said that his anger was kindled against them, and he intended to judge them. And though they've returned to that land today, friends, and when they got it, they had to stop all tours up to the ruins of old Samaria because the Arabs there were hostile. They still are, and they've made a new way in 
And that's the reason I insisted on taking our tour up there. But it's a desolate place, though a beautiful spot. The desolation there is something that is appalling. You can't help but be overwhelmed by it. And when you stop to think that there were palaces of ivory there, and in the ruins, the archaeologists today says that they have found, for instance, very lovely ivory perfume bottles, all kinds of ivory bric-a-brac, beautiful things that have been found there in the ruins of that. But the ruins, to behold them, actually, I noticed that our tour was depressed, having seen all of that, and rightly so. Why? Because God has judged Samaria, and it was a beautiful spot, and those were lovely buildings that were put up there, and these people were worshiping the calf there. Now, if you'll notice, verse 6, "...far from Israel was it also, the workmen made it, therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces." I don't know where you'd find it today. They certainly found no golden calf or any part of it or any piece of it up there. It was taken somewhere and broken to pieces. Probably it was melted down. But God says, you worship this thing. It's no God at all. It's not God. You've turned from God to worship this, and it's not able to help you. Listen to him, verse 7. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the strangers shall swallow it up. Again, the judgment of the famine, as well as the enemy that came in. Now he says here, verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. And you know where the ten tribes are today? Well, <laughs> If you think that we are Ephraim today, you read these chapters here about God's judgment on Ephraim. My friend, so many people that turn to this idea that we might be Ephraim and this nation might be, which is absolutely absurd, and I can't think of anything more absurd than that, but a great many people like to think that. Well, nothing in the world but judgment is mentioned of Ephraim here, friends. And Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the nations like a vessel in which is no pleasure. You can't locate them, and you'll not be able to locate them either. Nobody could locate them. I'm confident that they are mixed up with the tribe of Judah when they return, and there's been no way in the world to separate them out, and they're scattered throughout the world today. Actually, there's more of Israel in New York City than there is in the whole nation of Israel. And there are more outside of Israel, many times more, than there are in the land. At least four times as many are outside of the land, even today. And God has made it very clear here. He swallowed up. And now he says, verse 9, here is another reason, just a specific act that they did that brought judgment. For they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim hath hired lovers. And what a condemnation this is. They're like one of these long-eared mules. And a great many of us sometimes feel like we've acted like that. And they went up to Assyria for help. 
and they tried to buy off Assyria, paid lovers. But they found out that they couldn't buy off Assyria, and God will use Assyria to judge them. Yea, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them, and they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes, because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall be unto him to sin. Now, an altar is a place to worship. God gave the nation Israel an altar. And we today in the church have an altar. Those of you that were with us in Hebrews, the last book we studied before we came here, the Hosea, we saw that we have an altar. It's in heaven. And the throne of God today is a throne of grace. And the Lord Jesus is our great high priest at that altar to make intercession for us. Actually, an altar is a place of worship. Now, God says here that they've made many altars to sin, and altars shall be unto him sin, not worship. What does he mean by that? He means that they've turned to idols, and they've turned to religion, and the worship of idols, and it won't help them. It'll bring judgment upon them. And religion, friends, has been the most damning thing that this world has ever experienced. Religion has damned the world. Look at India today. They can't even have a porterhouse steak over there because the cows are sacred. And yet multitudes starve into death and they can't raise cattle. May I say to you, look at the condition of China today. Anywhere religion is gone, and you take our ancestors yonder in the wilderness of Europe, in the forests there, and in England. May I say to you that religion has not helped. It's damned the human race. Only the Lord Jesus can deliver us. Now let's move on down. He says, I've written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. That is, they didn't know anything about it. Now, let me repeat this again today. I say this many times, but because so few are saying it, I say it more times than I probably need to say it. And it's just simply this. As we've already seen here, God says, I've given them my written word. And to them, it's a strange thing. They're ignorant of it. And friends, that's the condemnation of our nation today. We try to pass as a civilized Christian nation. We're anything but that. And the ignorance of the Word of God today is, to me, one of the most amazing things that there is in this land. And that's the reason we're committed to teach it. I think the Word of God needs to be taught. And I consider that the biggest business today that the church has is to get out the Word of God. I don't think your preacher is to be a business administrator. I don't think that he's called upon to be a social lion and to be able to mix and mingle with people. The important thing is when he stands in that pulpit, does he give you the Word of God? And friends, if he does, you stand back of him and you back him. But if he's toying around and playing today and riding the fence, I don't ask you to support a man like that, and especially in liberalism. But we need to stand back of men who are teaching the Word of God. And across this land, there are many today that are doing that. But frankly, though, I think they are the men that are getting a hearing today. Yet 
They're not getting the hearing that they should have. And we rejoice oftentimes about the way this little program of ours has grown. But I want to say to you, we're just a drop in the bucket. This nation is ignorant of the Word of God. Now he says, they sacrifice flesh for the sacrifices of mine offerings, and they eat it, but the Lord accepteth them not. They go through the ceremony, they've got the ritual, and they know the vocabulary. But that's all it is. And the Lord knows them and doesn't accept them. I discovered as a pastor that you have a few people who learn the vocabulary of fundamentalism, and fundamentalism has a vocabulary. They know when to say, praise the Lord, and the Lord bless you. They're a wonderful expression. But I tell you, in the mouth of some people, it freezes me in my tracks when I hear some make a statement like that. Because, my friend, it's just a ceremony. It's just an outward show. Now he goes on and he says that the Lord accepteth them not. Now will he remember their iniquity and judge their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Now, I don't want to go into this, but I think it's becoming increasingly evident today that when Babylon destroyed Assyria, that many of the ten tribes joined with the ones that were taken into Babylonian captivity of Judah, and many of them returned back to the land. And as you know from Jeremiah, many of the people in that day, after the Babylonian captivity, went into Egypt. And actually, I think that's what Hosea is saying here. Now, I can't get very much backing for that from some very fine commentators that I respect a great deal Bible expositors today that I listen to. But that's just my own private judgment, and you take it for what it's worth, which may not be very much. Now, verse 14, "...for Israel hath forgotten his Maker, and buildeth temples, and Judah hath multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire upon his cities, shall devour their palaces." Now, God says that Israel hath built temples. They tried to build substitutes for the temple in Jerusalem. And the very interesting thing is that it was in that temple, and that temple only, that God said sacrifices were to be made to him. But Judah has sinned also. God will judge them later. But the thing that's going to happen to these that were building these temples... They are to be destroyed. And if there is a section of that land that seems to me to be more desolate than any other section, because it ought not to be. Now, way down in the Negev, they don't get any rain. It's a very arid area, and you expect it to be that way. But up in the northern section, you wouldn't expect to see a desolation as you see it, and especially... When you have a valley like the Valley of Esdraelon, it's probably the richest valley in the world even today. But yet, all around, you see evidences of the judgment of God even to this day upon that land.